Our first guest on the program today wrote a piece for theconversation.com that caught Andrew and my attention a few days ago. It's entitled, No Back to Normal After COVID-19. Healthcare should shift focus from treatment to prevention. Our next guest joining us from the University of Manitoba, where she is a PhD candidate, Caitlin Obitsinski-Kurek is our guest and the author of said piece on The Conversation. Caitlin Kurek, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Tell us uh, what uh, what you're doing your PhD dissertation on. Which uh, faculty are you with, Caitlin, please? Uh, yeah, so I'm in the faculty of sociology, and my focus is on healthcare. Uh, primarily, my focus is on home care, actually, and on focusing on informal caregivers and medicalization. Right. Um, and the healthcare system in general. Okay. Now, the healthcare system in general is what you focused on on this piece that we're going to talk about. That's a very interesting piece that you wrote. But uh, just just to dive into your own work for a couple of minutes, if you don't mind, what's your dissertation going to be on home care specifically? Yeah. So my dissertation is looking at home care in Manitoba. Um, and I'm looking specifically at informal caregivers. So those are the people that are your family and friends that help you on a daily basis that sometimes we don't look at when we're thinking about home care policy. And to break that down even further, I'm looking specifically at the home space and what happens to your home when you invite in um, the medical system and when you invite in trained nurses um, and medical technologies and those kinds of things and what it can do to your home um, because you're turning it from your very private space sure. into something that's more public and a workplace. Interesting stuff. And yet the, the home space, I'm, I'm assuming, Caitlin, uh, the, the impetus for it all being the home space would be the preferred space for an individual to receive care until uh, it's just not possible any further. Right. So that's generally what people tend to think is aging at home is is the goal and the best place to be. Um, but sometimes that can change when your home becomes so medicalized to the point where it may not feel like home anymore. Yeah, good point. Um, so, yeah, that's what my research hopes to uncover. And, you know, I, I've, I've uh, over my lifespan, have had the opportunity to visit people who are receiving considerable care, but in their home environments, Caitlin, and just, this is anecdotal stuff, by the way, but, you know, you, you I've been in situations where you go to visit so-and-so at their home, and it really does feel like a hospital room uh, with all right. of, with all of the gear and uh, perhaps even a medical assistant of some uh, some kind close by and, and at that point you're on on the the head of the pin aren't you you could you could easily be in a hospital at that point right and so my research wants to look at people like the family members that may live in the home that's been medicalized and that has been changed for the person receiving care um, but it's looking at the informal caregiver and the family member. And so your home, even though you live there and you're providing support, um, a lot of these medical technologies are not for you. And so their experience of, at, of being at home um, once it's been medicalized. Okay, want well, to move on to the article that you wrote, but just a final question on, on your thesis. Which, sure. is, which, is, which is cheaper? Uh, that extended care still in the home environment or having the individual in a hospital environment? I would assume the home somewhat cheaper, but not a great deal. Uh, yeah, the home the home would be cheaper, but again, because we don't have a national home care program, that's going to change depending on your province and your region. Um, so I, I'm from Manitoba, so we do have a public system. Right. So it's definitely cheaper, yeah. 
Okay. Now, the the, uh, title of the article is No Back to Normal After COVID-19, Caitlin. Healthcare should shift focus from treatment to prevention. And yet it's it's the reason the headline caught our eye, uh, among other things, because the article is is good too, but the headline suggests uh, it's sort of counterintuitive because it's the, if there's one thing that most of us, and I'm sure this happens within your own social circles, Caitlin, the one thing that most of us express even quietly under our breath is, gosh, I can hardly wait till things get back to something resembling normal. This is nuts. And you're suggesting that back to normal is just not where we need to be headed with healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I I hear that all the time. And that question was actually um, what sparked me wanting to write this um, was that question of normal. So if you think about where normal was before, um, in particular in healthcare, our, our healthcare system doesn't always do a good job of keeping us healthy and preventing illness before it occurs. And so now that we have this health crisis and we're in the middle of a pandemic, going back to normal didn't really seem like something we should do. And instead we should try and pass normal is something that would be more equitable for all Canadians. Interesting. So the idea would be to take the mindset of the Canadian healthcare system from reactive. In other words, you go to see a healthcare professional or a hospital when you're when something's wrong, and we 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 avoid pretty much at all costs until that point. And that's the reactive nature of the system as we have it currently. And you're suggesting we need to be we need to flip the coin and and go to a proactive mental mode. Absolutely. And so health isn't generally something we think about until we're sick. Yeah. Um, and now that we have this kind of illness floating around everywhere, it seems to be in the back of everybody's mind um, that we're trying to prevent the spread. And it's just something that we're thinking about. Um, and so in some of the literature that I came across, it argued that our healthcare system isn't really a health care system. It's a sickness care system. And we only go to a doctor or to the hospital once we're sick. And so the approach that I'm hoping to take and the approach um, that pushes past normal acknowledges the idea that all policy is health policy. And so instead of just focusing on illness and disease, we need to take a broader look at some of the social determinants of health and incorporate that into what we think of as our health system. I suppose this is not revolutionary, groundbreaking new stuff in terms of attitudes. We've had a number of healthcare professionals for quite some time, in fact, randomly, it seems, Caitlin, suggesting precisely what you're talking about today, the notion that we need to be considerably more proactive and more aggressive in terms of the way we approach our own health uh, in order to avoid becoming, uh, not a victim, but a participant in the healthcare system because you're sick. Uh, But it it seems random, I think, was the adjective that that it's noteworthy because it's not been any kind of unified, let's get proactive uh, sort of mindset that is going to change much. You hear about it randomly, frequently, but not uniformly. Yeah, and I think that's been the trouble is often we don't see any sort of grand scale changes because we're waiting for political opportunities or we're waiting for something um, to kind of spark this change. And I think 
Um, as terrible as it might be, I think the pandemic is a great opportunity for us to make these kinds of changes and put the preventative focus um, at the forefront of right now. Well, if anything, the pandemic is forcing us to think proactively as a, as a large group. Suddenly, we're right. all in this together, and we see that every, we, every, every day, and we're all going to benefit from whatever outcome uh, results in a vaccine or other therapies that will get us through all of this. But um, it's a collective mindset that we need to get our heads around. Joined on the line from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg by Caitlin Couric, who is uh, a PhD candidate in the sociology faculty, who wrote a piece for the conversation uh, looking at no back to normal after COVID-19. Healthcare should shift focus from treatment to prevention. And Caitlin, one of the things that we, you're talking about taking our, our mindset uh, in the entire system from curative or the reactive way that we uh, treat people and Canadians now to a more proactive way. But it suggests in your article, the change has got to come from the top. And that includes the definition of healthcare. There may be a requirement to change the definition of the Canada Health Act because it ensures, according to the Act, that only medically necessary services are provided. And there's been more than a few hundred court cases about what exactly is medically necessary over the years. So would that be the place that you would recommend the change in attitude begin with a revisit to the Canada Health Act? It has to be. Um, I think, well, we know that the definition of medically necessary, nobody really has a definition and it can be determined by physicians. But I think what really sticks out to me is the idea that medically necessary services can change depending on the context. Um, so, for example, if you're receiving care in hospital, including some sort of drug care, as soon as you're discharged from hospital, you're now responsible for incurring those costs. So it's not necessarily the fact that you need the drugs that make it medically necessary. It's where you're taking them. Um, and so things like that that are just kind of little loopholes that are, even though we have this universal system, um, there's a lot of things that fall outside of that. And I think that if we were to expand that definition, um, we would receive a lot more healthcare um, that's equitable. Well, you talk about the pandemic being a situation under the clearly no one wished this upon ourselves at all. But here we all are together dealing with it. And because we all are dealing with simultaneously and trying to figure it out, nobody's got this thing nailed down or figured out. uh, Nonetheless, it does prevent an opportunity, present rather an opportunity for us all in the process of trying to deal with this in national emergency to take a look a good hard look and we are that at, at our system and the way we do things do you get the feeling caitlin that canadians really are during this time particularly really having a good long look at how we take care of ourselves and each other i think so and i think you're right this this isn't something that we asked for this isn't something that we wanted um but i think now is the time to construct the new normal because it has made us look at our health system and take a very critical eye um, to some of the things that we may not have previously thought of as health. Um, So because we have this pandemic, we we see the unemployment rates and we see the different things that are affected when our health is affected. And I think that's why we need to look at the social determinants of health to really broaden that focus. And because it is something that affects us as... um, 
as a country, we have a federal health system. And so we have actually 13 health systems, mm-hmm. um, the 11 provinces, the veteran system, and an indigenous system. And what that does is it breaks up um, healthcare into regions, but it can make these universal programs very, very difficult. And so grand scale change often doesn't occur because everybody has their own system. And so now that we have a pandemic that's affecting all of us pretty well equally, we can put in these universal programs um, because it's not just happening in one region or in one province. So what sort of things are you looking at? And in uh, Talk to our listeners, who have been, many of whom have not had the opportunity to read your piece at theconversation.com, which I recommend to our listeners they do. But talk about some of the changes that you would have us consider going forward. Right. So I think when I'm talking about preventative measures, um, some of the anecdotal comments that I've gotten is, you know, are we looking at homeopathic medicine? Or are we looking at um, you know, do people need to run every day? And kind of those preventative health measures. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to look broader than that. So not at the individual factors that make us sick, but the social factors. And so these social determinants of health can include everything from your socioeconomic status, um, housing, education, and having an adequate social safety net. So some of the things that I would suggest would be things like having a universal basic income. Even though we have... Um, disturb right now and it's helping more than three million Canadians that are out of work, but it's short term. And so if we were to have a universal basic income, um, we know that your your income is the greatest or sorry, the your income has the greatest effect on your health status. And so if everybody were to have a universal basic income, we would be healthier as a population. Um, other things that we could look at would be housing first strategies to make sure that everybody has a roof over their head. Um, So when we say, you know, to flatten the curve, we need to go home and stay there. Uh, Not everybody has that opportunity. So looking at things like making sure that we have housing for everyone um, would be things that in the long term would affect and improve the population health. Now, you're right to point out that we have 13 uh, various healthcare systems. We have the Canada Health Act, which we've already touched on, but we do have 10 provinces in charge, each in charge of their own fiefdom and the other systems you mentioned as well, the veterans, the First Nations systems and so on. Uh, But we also have, for many months now, Caitlin, seen at the national level leadership in healthcare. Now, yes, a lot of it is economically driven. There's no question about it. But the the leadership did come and did begin with go home and stay there. Now, that's a long time ago, but that kind of national leadership is rare for healthcare in Canada. So again, another opportunity presenting itself here, possibly. Yeah, I think so. And it, it does it does need to come from the top. And I think that it, it's difficult to do those changes because some provinces have different public programs already in place sure. and some, um, you know, they are the have and the have not provinces. And so everybody's going to react differently to some sort of top down federal approach. Um, but in this case, we need that kind of federal leadership and we need something to come forward or someone to come forward and say, okay, this is something that we need to do Canada wide regardless of the various health systems that we have in place. All right. So now almost out of time. And this is the biggie. 
and I saved the big one for the last one. How does this get done? We've talked about, uh, you've talked about a couple of ideas. I don't know that I agree with all of them, but they are certainly very much at play these days, the universal basic income being very contentious, et cetera. So how does it get done? Uh, from the average Canadian point of view, recognizing, Caitlin, that we've all been uh, not necessarily voluntarily looking at our health care system, but over the past few months, we all have had a good long look at our healthcare system. So if individual Canadians are sympathetic with some of your ideas, and certainly the notion that a nationally led system can take us to better places down the road, how do the individual Canadian voters get involved? That's a really good question. Um, I think from the individual perspective, we, we need to take a look at our system and recognize that all policy is health policy. And so we need to be sympathetic to those public programs and recognize that in the long term, they are cheaper. And so we need to change that mindset that taking that doing this is going to take money away from the current health system. And so that's not necessarily the case. We need to strike a balance between the curative and preventative. And so we do, we will need to reshift some of that money into the preventative, um, but it will really be less expensive in the long term and result in better population health. Interesting comments, Caitlin Couric. Thank you so much. You have begun a conversation that you you and I both know is going to continue right up to and through the next Canadian federal election. Some of the issues that you brought up this morning are going to be major platform planks come next election, which I hope is a year from October. No hanky-panky this year. We don't need any of that stuff. But I, I think you're very on target in terms of understanding the kinds of conversation Canadians are having and are most likely to continue having right through the next election. Thanks for uh, keeping the ball in the air for us this morning too, Caitlin. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure entirely, friends. If you want to take a look at this piece and read it all the way through, just go to theconversation.com. No back to normal after COVID-19 is the piece. The author is Caitlin Couric from the University of Manitoba. Thanks, Caitlin. Have a great weekend. Thank you, you too. It's a real pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. Bruce Heyman was the United States Ambassador to Canada for three years during the Obama administration. He is currently involved with a group called VoteFromAbroad.org, absentee ballots for U.S. citizens, and is an active supporter of the Biden campaign. Ambassador Heyman, Bruce, welcome back, sir. Good to have you back with us. Good to be back this weekend. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, we are doing well. You're joining us from Chicago again, Bruce, which is uh, a place where Barack Obama Actually, spent a lot I'm of time. I'm in the mountains. I'm oh. in the mountains out here. We moved out to Colorado, but I'll tell you, we've got fires out here and uh, smoke-filled air. So I don't know. You know, I... It seems like smoke fill there wherever I'm going these days. Well, we've had a lot of that, of course, here in British Columbia in previous years. So far up here, we seem to be dodging that bullet. But, you know, we keep our fingers crossed with uh, too much experience with forest fires in our jurisdiction, Bruce. I wanted to get your comments, first and foremost, just as, as a Democrat, uh, on the appointment, the announcement by um, former Vice President Biden this week, finally, of his choice of running mate, California Senator Kamala Harris. Well, she's spectacular. I know her personally and had the chance to meet with her 
actually before she even became senator in California, a group of friends brought her together for a dinner discussion in Chicago, and she wasn't looking for anything but just, you know, building relationships. And that's what you need to do in the political world. It isn't all about just, I need your vote and I need your money. It's about building relationships. And she did that, worked hard for years. She won three statewide races in California. She ran the largest Justice Department outside of the U.S. Justice Department. That Justice Department in California is the largest in the United States. She is a person of color, diversity, black in Jamaica, but also that Canada spice that comes in. She moved to Montreal at the age of 12 uh, with her mom, as her mom was a researcher at the Jewish hospital as well as a teacher at McGill. Mm -hmm. And she graduated from Westmount High in Montreal. So big Canadian connection. So when you think about the U.S.-Canada relationship, the combination of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris couldn't be better for Canada, especially given the way things have gone the last few years. I think this this is an opportunity for us to pivot and get things back on track. Now, you were talking about Senator Harris and her ability to establish relationships uh, beyond uh, just looking for money, etc. However, it should be noted, and I'm sure it has been by your colleagues in the Democratic Party, that subsequent to that announcement of Senator Harris as the uh, choice for vice presidential running mate on the ticket, I do believe the number was $26 million within 24 hours. Uh, that that announcement generated. So a positive from the donor perspective as well. Huge. In fact, um, to update you, it's 48 million in 48 hours. Oh, my. Okay. So this is huge money, uh, which will be very important in the campaign as we get into full-blown campaign season, which is really September and October. Everything is is a little bit preseason. We've got the convention this week for yep. the Democrats. The Republicans follow shortly thereafter, and then it's off to the races, full stop. And, you know, we always talk about in the United States an October surprise. So these seem to, boy, people sit on these things and pull those out in October, hoping to sway, sway the electorate. But, uh, you know, the funding is going very well for the Democrats at this stage, and uh, but they're going to need a lot to compete against a guy who does press conferences every day from the White House. Are you at all surprised that subsequent to the nom- the announcement of the uh, Biden-Harris ticket for 2020, within 24 hours, the White House was on to the birther mindset again, quoting some lawyer who had some obscure notion that uh, Senator Harris was ineligible to become uh, either president or vice president based on her questionable origin of birth. This is the same mindset, by the way, in the same group led by one Donald J. Trump many years ago when Barack Obama was nominated to be the presidential candidate for uh, the Democrats. About right back to the same argument, same old, same old. And by the way, uh, constitutionally, uh, as I understand it, and I'm not an American, you are, as I understand it, though, in, in both cases, the notion of ineligibility is fiction. Um, you've you've nailed it right on the head. So, but here here's what happened immediately afterwards. Not only did this come up, but they were flailing. They were calling her. Oh my God, she's so far left. She's going to pull him left. Oh my God, she's so you know tough with police, and she's a um, a prosecutor from from California. Oh my God, she's a nasty woman. Nasty. And they started using 
language and phrases that bring back misogyny and racism, and but they were flailing. And it really surprises me because she was a likely pick. Yeah. I mean, even in the betting odds, she was the number one pick, and she was the top name. You would have thought they would have had a, a more disciplined response, professional and disciplined. But it seems like, you know, from the vice president and the president, from people on, on conservative uh, talk shows and television, they were going in every different direction. They, they didn't know what to do with this. And uh, I think they didn't fully anticipate the enthusiasm factor that is bubbling up. I mean, to have um, they knew there was going to be a woman. Mm-hmm, sure. They thought there was a chance a woman of color. Yep. But for whatever reason, I don't think they fully appreciated you know, the outpouring of, of, of enthusiasm and embrace. Democratic Party today looks very different than 16. How does it look different? Well, it looks different, not because a man and woman are a ticket, because that was the same. But what's different is the parties together. And if you remember, we had the Bernie-Hillary battles Schism. going on. That's right, yes. intense. And I think it left a lot of people, you know, sitting on the sidelines. And I also think that there were, as a result of that, I think a lot of the black community were not nearly as enthused, and they sat on the sidelines. Now, this is not the case today. And we see the Democratic Party, regardless of whether you're left, right, or center, regardless of whether you're promoting tax cuts or not, where climate change is full-blown as you know uh, Biden is or not, everybody is agreeing on one thing. We've got to get this guy, Donald Trump, out of here, and they're consolidated in their view. Bruce, let me take a quick break. Our, our, our guest is former United States ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. And we're talking, of course, about the uh, uh, nomination of uh, the announcement, rather, of the uh, Senator Kamala Harris of California to the Democratic ticket, the Biden-Harris ticket to take on Trump-Pence in 2020. Mr. Trump is actively uh, engaged in voter suppression, some would say. He is attacking and deliberately underfunding the United States poll. Service. We're in Aspen, Colorado, joined on the line by former United States Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. Mr. Heyman is also involved with a group called VoteFromAbroad.org. And Bruce, you and I have talked about this. How many million Americans living abroad today are eligible to vote in November's election? Great question. And there are a variety of estimates. But the estimate that we're relying on as State Department data coming out of 2016, which said there are more than 9 million Americans living abroad, which would translate into about 6.5 million eligible voters. At 9 million, that would be the 11th largest state in the United States. Mm -hmm. But 6.5 million Americans eligible to vote means that they vote in the state that they last lived. And wherever, even if it's 50 years ago, even at a location that may be you know, uh, a department store or a a Walmart or something like that on top of it, it doesn't matter. But that's how the federal law works. Do all of those eligible voters living abroad, many of them here in Canada, Bruce, will they, if they are indeed able to vote, will that be done via mail? Good question. So the first thing you do is go to votefromabroad.org, as you've mentioned, you immediately go in and you need to do this now because of the timing that we're going to talk about in a second about this mail 
issue that's there. You register right now and you request your ballot to be returned to you via email, which is guaranteed by law. Now, you will get that ballot by law 45 days in advance of the U.S. election. So actually, international Americans are the first to vote. And they vote September 19th. Oh, okay. So you go right, you go right to your email box. You pull it up. In 25 states, you can email it back. In about five states, they require you to fax it back. And in about 20 states, they ask you to mail the hard ballot back. Right. And so that's the nut right there. And so that's why we're telling people, register now, get your ballot first day, and print it off and send it in the mail. And I have extraordinary degree of confidence that if you mail that from Canada in September, it will get there in time. But if you wait too much longer than that, if you wait till mid-October, I'm, I'm really concerned. And then that may force you to go to a courier service like FedEx or DHL right. or UPS and spend extra money to get it in on time. But, you know, this is the battle we're fighting. Donald Trump knows he doesn't have the numbers on his side. So the best he can do is get rid of the numbers on the other side. So it's all about voter suppression. It's all about taking names off the voter rolls. It's all about you know, hurting the mail-in vote. It's going to be having few machines for lots of people in certain districts where he thinks big Democrats are going to show up in Republican states where he can manipulate that. He's going to make it hard. So we're going to have to work extra hard to compete. I suppose what's most baffling for the outsiders, and we're just the next-door neighbors here, Bruce, is the fact that one man has the power to do that, to actually quite deliberately and with the assistance of many appointed poodles, all interim directors of whatever agency, including the United States Postal Service, that one man has the power to actually suppress that much of the voting population. It is um, unprecedented, I would think. This is so awful what we've experienced in this presidency that never in the founding of our country during the Founding Fathers, the building of the Constitution, and the powers that Congress gave to presidents over a long period of time that they took from themselves and handed over to presidents, did they expect, regardless of party, someone that was going to purposefully do things that destroy the country? And that's why I think this vote is the most important vote, because I think four years of damage is significant. But eight years may be unrepairable. Yeah. And so we need to make this change and we need to make it now. And it's unbelievable that Congress abdicated so much authority to the executive branch over a long, long period of time. And I think, you know, like someone who may have kept their doors unlocked or doors open and never had an alarm and then were then was robbed. You know, the first thing you're going to do after you get the robber out of the house is you're going Install to a security uh, system. An system <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Bruce, back to your, your point about voting from abroad. I'm curious because this is measurable stuff. What sort of right. demand level from expat Americans are you already seeing? Good question. So let me play with this math and just it's a little hard when you're listening on the radio, but I'm going to try to simplify it as best possible. So in 2016, 
about 1 million, I'm going to do just average, about 1 million ballots were requested around the world okay. from Americans living abroad out of the 6.5 million. Of that 1 million, 600 and let's call it 50, just for round numbers, were, were returned, 650,000. And about 500,000 and change were actually counted. So what happened here? Um, what happened was that some people did, got their ballot but never went ahead and sent it in. Some people sent it in but sent it in too late, right. so they missed the, the, the ballot deadline. deadline. Yep. Some people sent it in without signing it, which is ridiculous because that's the only way to verify who you are from your application to you know, your ballot getting in. Your signatures need to match. And so we ended up with about 7 8%, 7% actually voted. What we're seeing today is doubling that, doubling our numbers all across the board. Enthusiasm factor is very high internationally now. People are like, okay, you know, I may have never voted before in the United States. They have, may have lived away in British Columbia for 40 years, but they still have that American passport sure, and they yeah. still have that right to vote. And they may never have done it. But this year is the year. If there's any one year, any one year, we need your vote because Every vote counts. And not only if you're going to say, well, I vote in the blue state. We vote all the way down ballot. And we need to make sure that we get the right congressional representatives, the right local representatives, state and local. Because guess what? The census is out and there's going to be all kinds of gerrymandering about congressional districts and all kinds of games being played by the Republicans, again, trying to circumvent the vote. I have to leave it and there, then Bruce. We have all these wonderful people. I'm okay. sorry, I'm, I'm out Got of time. It. Always grateful for yours. We do okay. appreciate your jumping back in. And, and to our listeners, vote from abroad. One word: votefromabroad.org. Check it out. This is what Mr. Mr. Heyman is up to these days. Bruce Heyman, thanks for this. We'll talk again, sir. Uh, much appreciate your visit today. To Be well. Uh, to you too. This time last weekend on the program, we had a chat with the Honorable Bernadette Jordan in Nova Scotia. She is the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans and the Coast Guard, and she talked to us uh, yesterday, or last weekend rather, about some of the programs uh, that uh, the uh, federal government had just announced, the Fish Harvester Benefit, the Fish Harvester Grant Program, and we also pressed the minister on a couple of other issues, one of which was aquaculture, fish farming on the West Coast, and also the Fraser River Salmon Run. It's a pleasure today at the same time to welcome to the program for a reaction to some of those and perhaps a check on the status of some sectors of the industry, one of the major stakeholders. And of course, we're talking about First Nations fishery. It's a pleasure to welcome Bob Chamberlain to the program. Mr. Chamberlain is chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Bob Chamberlain, good morning. Hey, good morning, Sterling. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine, thank you, Bob. Good of you to join us, sir. Did you hear the minister by any chance last Saturday on the program, Bob? Uh, yes, I did. It also read the transcripts, which are uh, quite an interesting response to the very direct question you asked well i was concerned i, I i'm uh, i i know that uh, the fisheries benefits program and the fisheries grants program were supposed to have been the subject matter uh for the conversation and and we did deal with that but i was more interested in the aquaculture and fraser river salmon run parts of our discussion and and she and this is what i was hoping you might to be able to react to this morning bob she repeated for example on the notion of aquaculture open pen open ocean aquaculture the target date 
date that she repeated uh, last weekend was 2025 to have, uh, and working with all of our partners, blah, 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 uh, to have all of that resolved and presumably out of the open ocean and on land. Or did, did you take that from her remarks? Well, when I listened to her remarks, I reflected back on what's actually found in her ministerial mandate letter where it says to create a responsible plan to transition from open net pen salmon farming in coastal BC waters by 2025. Right. So what we have is a DFO minister that's completely disconnected from the realities in British Columbia. We know that 25 elected BC MPs signed a wild salmon forever unambiguous declaration to transition this industry out of the ocean by 2025. Right. And today we have, I can tell you that we have 99 First Nations that support the removal of fish farms from the ocean with a number of these nations wanting to be involved in land-based closed containment as an economic development opportunity. And in addition to that, we have environmental groups, commercial and sport fishermen organization, the Wild Salmon Forever businessmen, and the vast majority of British Columbians support this. And she drags her feet And we have not seen substantive action. And it's time for her to listen to British Columbians and not be an absent DFO minister that has no clue about what's going on out on the west coast of Canada. Well, okay, I got two points out of that. I got the the impression there was a minimum of enthusiasm for even discussing the matter, frankly. Uh, and and secondly, I got the uh, I'm curious to, uh, uh, because there is perhaps Bob a mistaken impression that some First Nations groups want not only the removal of open pen, open ocean fish farms, but they want the removal of the aquaculture industry from British Columbia altogether. And I don't, I don't believe that to be the case at all. And I'm, I was pleased to hear you say that there are many groups interested in on-land fish farming as a, a, an, a, an economic possibility. Absolutely. And if this government would be able to take the substantial steps to accomplish this, you know, think about what are the dominoes that fall over. First Nations reconciliation, protection of BC wild salmon, economic development opportunities, certainty for the aquaculture industry in British Columbia. Why will the minister and the government not make this a reality? I don't know. What have you? I would imagine, in your position as the uh, the chair of the uh, uh, Wild Salmon Alliance, that you perhaps have uh, put that question directly to the minister, or have you? Yes, we have. And uh, with Wild Salmon Forever, we posed some very clear questions six months ago to Minister Jordan via a letter, and the response was awful. It didn't answer the primary questions asked of her. And what was pointed out by Wild Salmon Forever as problematic, the minister pointed at these as a solution, and that essentially was the response. So avoiding the responsibility of minister by answering a question very directly and then turning uh, and pointing at different things like the Indigenous Multi-Stakeholder Advisory Body, which I am part of or was part of, Mm -hmm. and in that operation of that body, we were able to see quite clearly that status quo of conflict of interest found in Cohen is alive and well, and DFO is operating as a captured regulator, in particular the working group for disease and pathogens. And so they have not heard, listened, or embraced the Cohen Commission of 2012. And here we are eight years later, and we have no substantive action. 
I wonder if the ministers ever had a conversation with Alexandra Morton, uh, just as an example. Well, I would, uh, <laughs> I'd like to sit there and be a part of that conversation, of course. But, you know, what the minister is missing is that in the Cohen Commission, it says the potential harm posed to Fraser River sockeye stocks is serious or irreversible. And so what we have is uh, an absent DFO minister staying on the east coast of Canada, ignoring the MPs elected here in BC, ignoring First Nations, ignoring environmental groups. And here we are, where they're choosing to maintain status quo and remove themselves from their primary responsibility of looking after the environment and wild salmon. Bob, tell us a little bit about the Wild Salmon Alliance, please. Well, the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance was created about, geez, four or five years ago. And we went through and got mandates uh, through the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, the First Nation Summit, and the BC AFN. And we have First Nations from around the province that are part of it. Political advocacy group focused on the preservation and the protection of wild salmon. And so what we've been doing is being able to point out uh, and provide advice and recommendations to the Liberal government about how First Nations view a path forward to protect and enhance wild salmon. Right. I hand-delivered our, our 2016 report to then-Minister Dominic LeBlanc, and I have not seen any response, even though it was well attended by First Nations from across B.C. And in addition to that, the First Nation Leadership Council, which is comprised of the three organizations, also developed the report two two years later and given it to the DFO. And again, they're not acting on it. They're not embracing it. It's hardly consistent with the path of reconciliation with First Nations. And if the government could understand that meaningful steps to protect and enhance wild salmon in British Columbia is not only good for the environment and various economies that come from healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks, it would be a massive step forward in reconciliation with First Nations across British Columbia. Okay, almost out of time here, Bob Chamberlain. You're a, 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 you're a political animal. You were a, an NDP candidate in that by-election on the island last year. You know about politics and how the game is played. You sense a distinct lack of appetite from the government of Canada with respect to dealing with B.C. fishery issues. What's in well, it? What could be gained politically for them in a jurisdiction in which they're pretty shaky to begin with politically what's the why aren't they pursuing this even for political gain well that's the big question isn't it we have like i've mentioned we have 25 bcmps that signed the declaration from the wild salmon forever an unambiguous declaration and the minister is choosing to ignore her bc caucus ignore the 99 First Nations and environmental groups and commercial sport fishermen and continue this conflict of interest relationship with the aquaculture fish farm industry as described in the Cohen Commission. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have the government stating that they've, uh, they've acted on every recommendation and it's simply a lie. Ignoring a recommendation is not the same as implementing. Mm -hmm. And that's the, what we're facing from this government is a level of dishonesty. Of, and I think the Cohen Commission spent $32 million in the deep examination. And eight years later, we have nothing but declining wild salmon stocks in B.C., plenty of guidance to the government. They just will not 
do what is right for British Columbia wild salmon. Interesting. And of course, remember, this is the same Department of Fisheries and Oceans that back in the 80s actually managed the East Coast cod fishery out of existence. Bob Chamberlain, I got to leave it there, but thank you for this. And we will definitely talk again. This is where we're on to the fishery. We spent a lot of time on this program on the fishery. Julie and I have even been up spot prawn fishing as a result of it. And uh, we'll, we'll keep it up. So we'll talk again. I appreciate your time this morning. Well, thanks for your time, Sterling. Have a great day. You too. Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. And our guest uh, talking to us from the BCSPCA this morning is Sean Eccles, senior manager with Cruelty Investigations with the British Columbia SPCA. Sean, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, uh, Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's good to have you with us, and particularly on what is likely to be, Sean, the warmest day of 2020 so far. Tomorrow, the forecast is for even hotter conditions. But let's take a look at mid-20s in English Bay at noon and close to 30 in the Fraser Valley by afternoon and consider even warmer temperatures for tomorrow. So, who better to talk to on a day like this than the SPCA guy about pets and cars? Sean, I'm on the SPCA website. I'm looking at leaving dogs in cars, avoid heat exhaustion and save lives. There's even a button where individuals can click and pledge and share. It's called the No Hot Pets Pledge. So you can uh, even uh, more actively involve yourself in, in, in caring about those details. But let's, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of it. How long is too long in a hot or warm car, Sean? Really, quite frankly, uh, any length of time is too long for an animal in a hot car. Uh, it, it doesn't take long uh, for for animals to start feeling the, the effects of, of the heat. We've seen lots of videos. Animals can't tell us. I mean, they can only breathe through their mouths. So, so they're not able to, to talk to us and tell us. And we've seen lots of uh, videos of people that have decided, though, we'll take this on and we'll see how long it takes. Uh, Dr. Adrian Walton from Duty Animal Hospital in, Coke, uh, in Maple Ridge mm-hmm. did this a couple of years ago. And it, it doesn't take long at all before you really start to feel the effects of, of, the, of the heat and the, just, the, just the, the humidity, everything that goes on within that hot car. And, you know, we, we know for, for a fact that uh, it starts to affect the internal organs well before you even think. And your internal organs actually will start to cook. So it, it's not it's not prudent to, to take your animals with you. If you do take them with you, take them out. Don't leave them in the car for any length of time. And it really, you know, I can't tell you a, a definitive time for, for, any, for every dog sure. because the problem is it depends on the dog. It depends on the age. It depends on... Uh, the breed of the dog, sure. how, you know, whether this dog is a short, uh, short-nosed dog or a long-nosed dog, uh, it is. It's just it's all over the map. But we do know that it can. The, the, the effects are very real. And, of course, it all starts with, well, hey, I'm just going to dash inside and, you know, grab a loaf of bread and a thing of milk, and I'll be right back. I mean, three minutes tops. And, of course, it never yeah. takes three minutes. Never, ever takes three minutes, does it? No, and it doesn't. You know, when you, it, we've got stories of, of people, that, and it's all well-meaning. Nobody takes their animal with them in the car unless they really, really love their dog. Mm-hmm. Like, my dog is with me everywhere I go, but really, I, can, I can't leave her in the car when I, when I go into a store because you just don't know how long it's going to take. Sure. And I, I've got stories of, of people that have gone to the airport to pick up loved ones, and the, the airport plane has been delayed and they didn't take the dog into the airport and they've come out because they've been delayed a half an hour mm-hmm. and found their dog dead in their car. Wow. 
Okay, so what would you, you know? What, what, it, it, devastating. No kidding. Absolutely. So what now do you do? Suppose now you go to the supermarket today, as many will, and you know you pull into a parking spot, and in, in the vehicle that is beside you is a dog. And the dog looks to be yeah. in considerable distress. It's not going to get any cooler, Sean. And a few hours from now, it'll be really warm. So you, the individual person, uh, what, what can you do when you see this, this kind of distressed animal scenario? I know what the website advises you not to do, and that's break the window. And I'm, I'm going to repeat this again. Do not break the window. And I, you've got this in bold font. Only RCMP, local police, and BC uh, SPCA special constables have the authority to enter a vehicle lawfully to help a pet in distress. Not only are you putting yourself at risk when you break a glass window you also risk harming the dog but that's a kind of an instinct that some people follow it is and, and as a as a an agency that employs law enforcement officers we can't uh, condone people breaking the law right. even if it's all well meant well meaning well intentioned and at the end of the day people are going to do that and they're going to let the chips fall where they may right. and that's all i can really say on that what what i do recommend is if you can take that take note of the, the license plate number sure See if you can talk to somebody in the store. If it's if it's a, a big box store, or, or they can make just, an announcement. You know, eh? it's, go and get an amount, an announcement. A lot of stores are really really good. Some aren't, which really you know shame on them if they're not. But but there are there are malls that will do this for you. There are or for the dog. It's not for you. It's for the dog. Uh, there are malls that will do it. There are a lot of stores that will do it. I'm really, I'm impressed when I, when I go to stores these days and I see, you know, it's hot outside today. Don't leave your dog in your car. Your dog is, your dog is, is welcome in our store as long as it's leased and well behaved. Sure. You know, it, it, it amazes me, but that's what you can do. You can call the BCSBCA. I do have to let people know though, that you, we only have 30 special French consuls across the entire province of British Columbia. Right. And on any given day here in the Lower Mainland, I'm only going to have three people working, doing the jobs that they're doing on a regular basis. And then having to, to run all over the Lower Mainland to answer these calls, we will do it, but we're not going to be able to get to the mall. So we encourage you where you find situations like that to contact uh, local animal control, contact the fire department, contact uh, the police department, contact... Um, contact the BCSBCA, and, and we'll try to put you in, in touch with a number that you can you can uh, contact as well. Sean, are so you... people can call our one eight hundred number. Right. Okay. Our our, our number is one eight five five six two two seven seven two two, and and they will try to uh, contact a constable that may be within that area that can can uh, get to the get to the scene, or they may also be able to put you in touch with a, a local. Uh, a local animal control agency that that may be able to help you out. Sean, are you one or of those? They may be able to. Are you one of those special constables? Are you? Uh, do you have the authority to break into a vehicle yes, or rescue? I do. A, right. Okay. But obviously, yes, you're manager of animal cruelty services for the SPCA. So when one balances the kind of work that you're doing uh, in puppy mills and other horrible situations, taking you away uh, and uh, not to diminish the urgency of a dog stuck in a car on a hot day. But if you're calling a special constable to do the job, and they will if they can, as you say, that individual is obviously doing other animal cruelty-related things as well during that day, aren't they? 
Absolutely. Absolutely there. And and it's one of the, I know it's an area that we work on every year with all of the local uh, municipal governments around how can they assist, how can they go in and, and deal with some of these situations. And, and, you know, we do encourage that in the event that a dog is removed from a vehicle to always take the, the animal to a veterinarian to have it examined, to find out whether it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, in a lot of the cases, we are able to, and, and people are able to get these animals out, and and it, it comes to a successful conclusion. But all too often, these animals do suffer. And, and as I say, you know, we we have witnessed uh, post-mortems where animals have been recovered from uh, from hot cars. And um, unfortunately, these, these animals suffer terribly. Oh, when they're when they're having to be exposed to such high heat. Final question to you, Sean, and we're grateful for your time this morning. If there's a little note on the dashboard of the vehicle with the dog inside it that says the AC is on, are we supposed to go? Oh, well, okay. Well, and it, it very well may. It very well may be because there are there are some there there are there is some equipment that's out there, and I, I'd really like to try and find it. But there is some equipment that's out there that that enables you to leave the the engine running. Uh, you may not hear it. Maybe one of these electric vehicles. Sure, sure. And so there may be air conditioning that's on. So it, it's always a possibility. What you have to look at, is, and what we tell people is, in order to determine if a dog is in distress, how is that dog reacting when you're tapping on the window? Yeah. If that dog's not reacting at all to you, that's a problem. Right. If that dog is laying down on the bo- on the floor of the of the car and, and is not moving at all, that's a problem. If that dog is running around and is, and appears to be happy and is barking at you, dog is probably not in distress at that point. In time. Interesting stuff, Sean. I have to leave it there. I'm grateful for your time this morning, especially on a day like today. This is a very timely reminder for dog lovers like you and me. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Sean Eccles, the senior manager, cruelty investigations with British Columbia's SPCA. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.